I'm Nadia, dietitian and certified intuitive eating counsellor, and welcome to Good Enough Nutrition, the podcast, a space where we chat all about nutrition and well-being, intuitive eating, body image, and a sprinkle of all things periods and hormones. I'm here to remind you that guilt has no place near our food or bodies, and that you are good enough as you are always. So let's dig in. Hello beautiful people, welcome back to the pod. In today's episode I am talking to the lovely counselling psychologist Joe Sheedy and I'm really excited to bring this episode to you. I was trying to think about how to describe this conversation and it's funny in some ways it was surface level in the sense that we didn't dig down into any one topic but at the same time we still managed to go so deep And I really hope this conversation is both a reminder of the possibility to heal from wounds, from trauma, as well as highlighting, I guess, the crucial role that a supportive and compassionate and knowledgeable psychologist or mental health clinician can play to help guide that work. So in the episode, we talk about how Jo came to the work as a counselling psychologist, what is trauma and how it can show up in the body, what is trauma-informed care, the importance of common factors in healthcare, how shame can show up and the neurobiological development, and then lastly, what is internal family systems and the idea of self. I totally forgot to ask Jo at the end where people can find her, so I will do that here. Jo has a private practice and works out of Inner Strength Healthcare in Geelong. I'm not sure what her capacity is like as she is in high demand and after you listen to this episode, I'm sure you'll get the sense as to why that is. So I have linked to her website in the show notes, but Jo also mentions a few therapeutic modalities that she works with, including EMDR, polyvagal theory, and IFS, just to name a few. So I've also linked to a few resources on a couple of those, and hopefully you can find a supportive practitioner if that's what you're looking for. So enjoy the episode with Jo. I can't wait to hear what you think. Because she doesn't have social media that I'm aware of, feel free to reach out to me if you have any feedback, and I will pass that on. Enjoy. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Jo Sheedy to the podcast. Jo is a counselling psychologist with a background in physiotherapy. She worked as a physio for many years before pursuing a passionate interest in the mind, body, health, and retraining as a psychologist. Jo has experience in treating a range of psychological conditions with a particular interest in persistent pain conditions and trauma-related presentations. And she uses evidence-based therapies to help her clients achieve meaningful and lasting change. I had the pleasure of meeting Jo through Inner Strength Healthcare, which is predominantly a pelvic health physio clinic where we both work. But before I even started there, I actually bonded with the owner of the clinic, Celia, who I'm sure I'll get on the podcast at some point, um, about us both being passionate in trauma-informed care. And then when I started at Inner Strength, it was such a lovely surprise for me to find out that Joe, a psychologist, also worked at the clinic and is also super passionate about you know, working in the area of trauma and working with people with trauma backgrounds. So I am so thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for being here, Joe. Thanks for inviting me, Nadia. It's a real pleasure to join you. 
And so the first question I love to kick off with is what has been lighting you up recently? Mm, yeah, I was thinking about this and, and um, like work-wise, well, one of the things that we've been, um, as you know, we've been working on in Geelong is developing this pelvic pain clinic. And um, we had a meeting this week and I guess Celia and I have been working on approaches to educating people about pelvic pain and ways to cope with pelvic pain. And um, this week we had a meeting with um, some of the educators for that program. And it was just actually a really lovely feeling of kind of um, feeling like, that, that work that we've done a lot of over the last few years could kind of be gifted to the community, I suppose, you know, in a, in a broader sense than what I'm doing individually. So that felt really great. I feel like that's really been lighting me up. Yeah. So it's probably the biggest thing and, and um, yeah, just still heavily kind of exploring therapy approaches related to IFS and EMDR, which, which is a trauma processing treatment, eye movement, desensitization reprocessing and kind of um learning ways of bringing those two approaches together has really been switching my brain on and informing my work with my clients and I'm sure we'll definitely get into the latter part of things um yeah during our podcast together but yeah. I definitely agree on the pelvic pain clinic that's just been starting up in Geelong it's honestly it makes my heart sing to know that you're a yeah. part of it and that Celia is a part of it and just people that are so passionate about supporting people with pelvic pain in a really holistic way so I yeah. I can definitely agree with that one <laughs> yeah absolutely and just a really lovely um kind of recognition of what a lot of people have been going through without coordinated care so it just does feel really lovely to feel like there's something really positive in that space it's yeah yeah and um I guess that leads me to asking because I know that from what I said in the intro your background is actually in physiotherapy and I know a little bit about your story but I would love for the listeners to hear it as well so what led to you doing the wonderful work that you now do yeah, so um, I did. I started um, out as a, you know, 18-year-old heading off to uni, not knowing what I wanted to do and um, feeling like physio was interesting. I was interested in healthcare and, and so I completed my physio degree and worked in that area for a long time, like about 20 years off and on while I was training as a psychologist. And, um, yeah, I've been working... Um, with another group of physios on sort of, um, what's the word, sort of trauma-informed care for physios really. And it really made me reflect on why I became a psychologist. And I think it was because a lot of that language and understanding of what was going on between me and my patients wasn't really understood in the, well, at least I wasn't understanding it in the physio world at the time. And I was kind of really curious I suppose, about the human um, that lay behind the physical problem, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I, and I suppose what happened then was I started uh, segueing out of doing musculoskeletal work, which is kind of what I'd ended up doing more of in physio, and I took a job in a cancer hospital, um, which was a lot about mind-body um, approaches, and, and then that was kind of like the point at which I started really thinking about what I wanted to do for the rest of my working years um and yeah and, and then just decided even though psychology seemed crazy long and I was probably never going to finish may as well start in the thing that I was really interested in and so 
just started with an undergrad degree and chipped away for a long, long time until I finished a PhD. So it took a long time. Mm. But well worth it. You know, every step of the journey was kind of, you know, it's not like the uni years were terrible or, um, you know, it was all a really positive process. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Like I think when we think about uh, medicine or Western approaches in general, I think we often separate things out don't we like you've got the specialities all separated out you've got the people who yeah. work with the feet or you know yeah. the pelvic area or the bodies or me with like nutrition and food but yeah once, or then there's the mind right and then yeah once you see it's all connected you can't unsee it <laughs> and you yeah. can't unsee how yeah the mind and the nervous system and how that impacts every area of the body and physical health and it sounds like you couldn't unsee it and you took the steps to then yeah, you know do absolutely. further study yeah yeah I think that's what I became really interested in was how the mind was influencing what was going on in the body probably mm. would sum it up and then just became really interested in working from that perspective rather than through the body predominantly Mm. yeah and, yeah and we've mentioned trauma-informed care a couple of times mm. uh which is and it's so great to hear that you and Celia and others are doing that work on educating getting the word about trauma-informed care out to other health professionals and I think it's also helpful for uh people in general public to know what it is as well to know what to be able to you know hope for from their clinicians or expect from their clinicians as well so I'm wondering if you can share what trauma-informed care is and why it's so important. Yeah absolutely so I guess it's good to understand firstly what trauma is mm -hmm. and then um, what trauma-informed care might look like so I suppose the way that we generally understand trauma is that it's just anything really that overwhelms the nervous system's ability to cope and um, then once we understand that that's kind of what trauma is by definition, then we can kind of group together, I guess, two different types of traumas. Um, uh, and so one type of trauma is, I suppose, a single incident trauma, like a car accident or a, being involved in a bushfire or something that happens as a one-off to someone that is truly overwhelming. Um, that's kind of one type of trauma. And then we also talk about relational trauma or trauma that happens in a more um, repetitive way as, as something that goes on in relationships, relational trauma, I suppose. And um, very often it's the case that, um, that people can have both, you know, that have experienced relational trauma in their childhoods and then unfortunately then are exposed to another single incident trauma later on and um, I think sometimes when people um, would like to heal their trauma sometimes they, they can focus more on the single incident without understanding some of the impacts of the other types of traumas and of course that's enormously variable according to how that occurred what age the person was whether it was ongoing or whether it stopped whether there was a protective person in that person's life you know there's many many variables to what might influence how that person's nervous system was impacted yeah, yeah. and also not to miss you know the idea I guess also of resilience that we're not um we are not um necessarily uh, we're impacted by that, but we don't want to kind of see ourselves as victims of it or that it's something that we can't recover from. And I suppose that's um, 
probably the source of like the greatest joy in my work is to help people heal and recover and um, gain a sense of control over some of these events that might have been out of their control and, and kind of reframe how they relate to those events and and just do the work of healing as well. Mm, yeah, and I think yeah. that like understanding what is considered traumatic or, or trauma to a body can really help help then understand the path for healing, I think. And like when you talk about because I think like at least historically when I heard the word trauma I would always think yeah big t trauma like you said something a yeah. single event or something catastrophic or like deeply troubling occurring mm. and I think the definition you gave that it can be anything like overwhelming happening mm. that in- can include a lot and it can be mm. also be nuanced depending on the individual can't it because I've often heard it said but that it can be it can be things that are yet yeah, too much or too overwhelming or too fast, yeah. but it can also be yeah. not enough or too little as well, can't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's right. So I guess, in you know, sometimes we hear um, that those types of experiences described as little teeth traumas, so they're yeah. not a car accident or a one-off, but they're, um, yeah, injuries of neglect or injuries of, um, the absence of something that was needed and maybe um yeah maybe yeah it's it, I guess it is a form a form of relational trauma and mm-hmm. certainly it has an impact that's that's for sure on people's nervous systems and it really depends on the individual mm-hmm. as to how they manage that situation and cope with it and um that's probably as I said influenced by a whole range of variables you know mm-hmm. in that yeah. person's life at the time yeah definitely and like everyone will respond differently and I think like in our society we do a lot of comparisons right and like it's also I think people would compare like would almost at least I see it they have kind of diminished their own experience you know it's like we're not competing in the trauma olympics like if something that impacts you happens for you then yeah. that's true to you and you deserve support and healing for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's really true. Yeah. And understanding also, um, yeah, like I said, all the protective things yeah. that can really help someone be resilient in the face of those things and also seek help to kind of um, to to not have that be a constant ongoing thing in their life that's a cause of distress or upset or dysregulation in their nervous system. Yeah, and and speaking of that seeking help, I guess finding um, obviously support from someone who is practicing trauma, right, and a psychologist, um, for example. But I guess even if we just broaden it to trauma informed care, which isn't necessarily trauma treatment, but um, that was, I guess, the second part of the question is yeah, what is, yeah. is trauma informed care? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really good question. And I think if anyone's interested in understanding more about this, I'll probably send you to the Blue Knot website. Um, so the Blue Knot are an Australian organization and I think they're based in Melbourne. They certainly have a um a lot of their training is in Melbourne. And they do really wonderful work um around um some of these um key ideas and education around trauma and um also training organizations and um yeah, um, practices and things like that in the principles of trauma-informed care. And, and I guess there's a real, like I'm really aware there's a there's a massive kind of um, increase in understanding and, and hunger to be able to understand these principles and work in this way. As even in healthcare, I feel like there's a growing awareness of 
um, you know, some of the natural and normal adaptations that occur in people's nervous systems that they can present as symptoms um, and that that might be related to, you know, previous events in their life and, and what we can do you know, all of us can do um, to help people around that. So if we wanted to just go over the principles of trauma-informed care, the first one is trauma awareness. So that's everything that we've just been talking about, you know, just understanding what is trauma. And um, I guess there's, there's a real change in the way, you know, in the mental health field at least, and hopefully this will spread to healthcare more broadly to, um not kind of, and, and it's much more applicable to mental health probably than physical health because physical health um, often needs, you know, proper assessment and care in that physical domain. So I'm not kind of suggesting that everything should be seen through a mental health lens, but the, the lens I'm talking about is looking at someone with the idea of not what's wrong with you but what's happened to you. So um, that's one way that we sort of start to change the language with trauma-informed care, so just understanding that the way someone presents in terms of behaviours and mental health symptoms are li um, likely to be related to adaptations to earlier adversity. Um, and so the next principle is just to promote safety and so um, just to understand there's all sorts of ways that we can promote safety that might be in the language that we use with people, that might be in understanding um, not to go through someone's history in, in a lot of detail if it's not absolutely necessary because it's likely to be dysregulating and re-traumatising. It might be as simple as making sure that the rooms are soundproofed. I mean, that's not simple, but, like, that's an important thing. There are all sorts of ways that we can promote safety for um, the people that we work with to ensure that, you know, that um, experience for them feels um, contained and safe and helps promote their next steps. Um, and then the next principle, uh, and these are taken from the Blue Knot principles, I think there's various principles out there, but they all are kind of in the same vein, um, but it's rebuilding control. So just offering opportunities for people to look for ways that they can um, leverage some control back. And like I said, um, what we understand is that having a sense of control over your life and your circumstances is a really key principle of resilience and coping and so um, really helping people not just focus on the negatives of what's happened but how they can um, faction and rebuild control in their own lives even in really small ways is super important um, and similar to that is is a strengths-based approach so really helping people focus on what they can do what they've found is that it's already helpful um, ways that they've already learned to cope um, and really focusing on and even their own individual characteristics you know everyone every client comes in with a range of their own strengths and um you know, qualities of their character and even helping people notice that and that they, they're um, bringing that in and they can use that for their own recovery is really helpful. Um, promoting connection is another principle, so really helping people connect to, um, I guess, help and uh, treatment, but also more broadly building social connections because we know that's super um, important for mental health and, and physical health too. And then also just um, building belief in recovery. And um, I was listening to a, a webinar of someone um, yesterday who was talking, sharing a little bit of their own healing journey from trauma. And um, it was just beautiful to hear this person talk about all the ways that they'd healed and um, what some of those steps involved for them. And I guess just the idea that it is completely possible to recover. And so um, that they're the principles in a nutshell.
Mm, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think like they're all, every single one that you say, it just makes so much sense, doesn't it? And it really um, feels a lot more empowering to the individual, mm. right? And I think that spoke to the one that you said about having that sense of control and it's almost like autonomy um, and empowerment in their own yeah, lives. Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Not yeah. feeling helpless. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess is often um, what can happen in certain traumas is that sense of powerlessness and helplessness. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. That's why um, every health practitioner um, is, you know, you can be really powerfully placed in a position to kind of build those things into the consult and really help um, the person that you're working with focus on those types of um qualities or strengths or opportunities and um t- I guess one of my passions is helping other um non-mental health trained practitioners understand that that is really crucial work and if it's done well um you know that that can sometimes for some people that may be enough you know just to actually flip that sense of control around so that person's actively kind of seeking out what they need or taking steps that might be around exercise or changing diet or whatever but these leverage points are really um helpful and um everyone's got the capacity to bring that into their work yeah and to that like I wonder if you have any um particularly particular strategies that that you would share with even the yeah, non-mental health professionals that it, or, or general ways I know it will be different for everyone in the caseload they're working with but I'm wondering if you have specific things or whether it's just an energy that they show up with like yeah I'm curious if you have specific strategies that would work yeah um I mean, I feel like one of the most important things, and there's really good data on this, is certainly in the in the psychotherapy world about the idea of common factors. You know that um, the that common factors are a really important ingredient in therapy success. So, um, yeah, there's been a lot of research done in that area for psychologists, but I feel like the idea of common factors is equally applicable across other. And so they're just things like empathy and attunement and respect mm. and authenticity and, um, you know, confidence. Um, so there was a really interesting study um, that was done. I don't know, I probably haven't got time to go into it fully, but it was fascinating. It was a, um, there's a guy at the University of Wisconsin and people could Google him if they're interested to read more about this work. His name is Bruce Wompold. Um, he's a very clever guy and he's um, done a lot of research, but this particular research study looked at um, an allergic reaction or kind of a histamine response in the skin from a prick with a, um, like they introduced like a, I don't know, like a, um, kind of think of the word, but like they put a pinprick something into the skin that would give an, um, you know, a histamine kind of allergic response. And so, um, and what they measured, they had four experimental conditions. So one of them was a practitioner that had high empathy, low competence, and then high empathy, high competence, low empathy, low competence, and whatever I'm missing of the other, uh, you know, um, four. And what they did was they, um, this person said, we're going to do a skin prick test and we're going to see what the size of your skin wheel is, what how big that um, red patch in your skin gets and how big that response is and what they found and it was and the participants were obviously blinded to what the conditions were and what they found was in the high empathy um high competence 
um, setting. So what they did in the clinical rooms was they set the clinical room up so that it was like it looked organised, you know, the, you know, degree qualifications were on the walls in frames, you know, stuff like that. And it just, the person felt very confident. They communicated with what they were doing or what they were planning and also really high empathy. So really tuning into where the person was at and, get, you know, getting their consent for it. Um, and then obviously that differed across the other conditions. And what they found was the skin wheel changed, like it was really different across those different conditions. So the physio physiological response to that stimulus really varied according to the way the patient perceived the, the practitioner. That's so it's just so one example. Interesting, isn't yeah. it? And yeah. I think I think we know that for ourselves as well. Like Absolutely. To share a personal story. Recently, I went to get an iron infusion, and yeah. my GP was doing it the first time I tried. Yeah, and like. Yeah, there's definitely, I could tell she didn't necessarily feel super confident with it. I mean, obviously my veins <laughs> play a role as well, but there was like a lot of frantic energy and uh, that probably didn't help my veins because I ended up not being able to get it because she tried three times and we couldn't totally. do it and I almost totally. passed out. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. And then the second time when another person tried to do it at the hospital, obviously they've got a bit more practice, but then I was probably also a lot more, I felt more contained, more confident and Totally. Wham, bam, so easy, no There's worries. There's your physiology, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so we'll probably get to it later if we talk about internal family systems because yeah. in that model we can talk about the idea of self-energy. Yeah. But I guess even just, um, you know, polyvagal theory is helpful for this too. You know, ventral vagal state is maybe comparable to the idea of self-energy. But if as practitioners we can work with our own cells, with our own systems and kind of regulate our nervous system so we can be in that consult almost as a co-regulation resource so that we're not feeding off, you know, what whatever's going on for that person, whether they're resistant, whether they're anxious, whether they're depressed, and we can hold a kind of regulated energy, um, then that's also a really helpful thing to bring into the work. And mm. everyone can do that. And, um, you know, I'm really, really passionate about some, as you know, Celia and I have been doing some training in this space for physios and really helping them understand what that brings and that's not nothing, you know what I mean? Because sometimes we can kind of dismiss or, you know, in the work we're often um, really caught up in our, you know, helper parts or our, you know, treater parts or our own ego or however you want to frame that. And, um, and that actually the work is smoother and often more successful if we can come into that as kind of calm and regulated and compassionate and curious and just able to meet that person with whatever's going on. So I suppose that's um, coming back to that idea of common factors, you know, in that research that tells us that common factors are a really important mediator for change. And I don't think that's just in psychotherapy. I feel like that's the board I'm not sure how the research would play out in a physical discipline compared to a mental health discipline but I think they're really good principles that are probably generalizable to some extent mm, 100% yeah and I think you know I I'm sure I have a few listeners who are practitioners and would probably find this really helpful but I definitely I came into the idea of trauma-informed care through the polyvagal theory yeah, lens right. as well so yeah I think if um, I'll definitely link some resources on that in the show notes as well as yeah. like the blue knot 
um, resources as well. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, this is the coming together of mind and body, isn't it? Because you mm. kind of go polyvagal and art, they're so linked. Mm. Um, so it's really nice. Like that's sort of the joy of the time that we're in, I think, is there's a lot of cross-talk and sharing of resources and building um, understandings and yeah, so I'm I'm really keen to kind of promote that and also promote um, understanding of limits of scope, you know, where people shouldn't tread because it could be unhelpful for the client. Mm. And I think, I guess, coming back to the idea of attunement with another, like that's not something I didn't learn that in my studies. Like nobody told me to attune with how the client is going emotionally in session, <laughs> right? Um, but coming back to that idea of the body and we're just we just kind of define trauma and I think like I said historically we kind of put it in like that's a mental health category that's to do with the mind <laughs> but we know that trauma can show up in the body as well can't it so how does how can trauma show up in the body and how can it impact our well-being mm, that's a really good question um well I guess one way of understanding trauma is to kind of um, maybe understand that some things that happen to us are kind of maybe not, especially depending on what age they happen, they may not be stored as kind of memories in the brain but more kind of somatic experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that um, trauma can show up almost as if a trigger occurred in someone's life that they may not be aware so much of a thought or a feeling in relation to that but might experience a change in their body so a tightness in the neck or a um, constriction in the gut or a change in heart rate or something like that so um yeah certainly that would be one way of just like somatic memory um uh but also i mean i think the other thing that that can be helpful to understand is that um we're all heavily influenced um, by our early caregiver experiences and this is the whole theory related to attachment which is too big to kind of unpack in the podcast but it's just the idea that um, and if people are interested to read about this there's a guy called Dan Siegel who's an American psychiatrist who's done uh, a lot of the work in this field of what he I think labeled interpersonal neurobiology and it's just the idea that um, our nervous system, because we're born relatively undeveloped as a species, because our, our head would get too big to get born if we stayed in as long as we probably should to stay for, you know, optimal neurological development. And so a lot of our neurological development is happening outside the body and it's happening in the context of our caregiver relationships. And so... Um, what kind of happens is there's kind of like a body-based even or a, or an, a completely unconscious lens of expectation of how other people are going to behave to us, toward us, and our clients will bring that into the sessions and it's all completely unconscious for them and unconscious for most practitioners as well, but there's a kind of dynamic playing out. You know, if someone has largely had good experiences, they're going to come in with a positive expectation and trust and and then for other people who have had more challenging experiences with caregivers, they might have difficulty trusting and that may show up as a kind of way that they use language or communicate, but it might just be a sense in what their body is doing that they're a little defended or protected. So, mm. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? There's so it much we could talk about. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was a huge question, like how how does it show up and, and impact our body and our well-being? And like you said, it can... Um, it can be in the physical sense. So it might be certain conditions or like you said, 
you know, tight neck and whatnot. Um, yeah. but also our relationships and how we show up with others. And I yeah. definitely, I can definitely see that and think about, yeah, how even like at posture and things like that. Yeah, how, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like health is so complex, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. there's so much that happens in that um neuroendocrine immune kind of complex and the the complex the hba axis that is kind of a stress response so um there's so much complexity there in terms of how stress and earlier adverse events may influence the body and influence health outcomes but i guess we know from the aces study you know the really big study that was done in california in the 90s that there's a really clear um dose dependent relationship between adverse earlier events of life and um, later health outcomes and that's pretty clear mm-hmm. from that data and that was a big piece of the landmark study that helped us appreciate that a lot of this stuff isn't random yeah yeah and so um moving slightly from how trauma impacts the body to how people actually cope with trauma and I think we were having a conversation about this the other day weren't we how you know, how people survive trauma, how they cope, how they self-regulate and how, I guess, historically society and even healthcare has seen certain ways of coping as as bad or wrong. So why, using things like alcohol or drugs or, or in my work, it's things like restriction or binging or emotional eating. And now I can see that as ways of coping of ways of self-regulation but historically we've seen that as maladaptive it's Mm. actually really adaptive and I think that's what we were talking about and it seems like such a more compassionate and helpful way of looking at things so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about adaptations in the context of trauma and coping and self-regulation yeah sure um it's another big topic isn't it but um I mean, I think what you've explained is is probably like at the core of it, that um, all we're ever trying to do at any point in time is survive. And um, if we're trying to find survival adaptations, especially in the early years of our life, um, we're likely to learn, you know, ways of coping with adversity. For example, um, if like we were talking about earlier, like injuries of omission, which is just like maybe not enough attention or maybe not enough care or not enough of a caring adult even noticing what a child is doing, that child has got to find a way of surviving that experience because there is a really um, hard-wired drive to attach and to get care and that's cross-species and and that's unavoidable. We're all just wired in that way to orient us towards care. And um, there's also lots of really great studies that are done in the attachment world around this about that care and touch actually being more promoting of survival than food and nutrition for um, little babies, you know. So if babies are deprived of one or the other. Um, so I guess it sort of talks to the primal importance of um, connection and care. And if we don't receive enough of that, and this is obviously just one example of what an adaptation might look like, then that person has to find a way of surviving that. So that might be closing down your emotions because when you feel your feelings and you notice that that person's not available, that's just chronically painful. And so maybe an adaptation around that is just to close that off to conscious awareness and shut down feelings. And um, if that happened chronically over that person's life, you know, sometimes it does show up in health problems because 
we are designed to feel our feelings in our body. And, and so that's just one example. But um, Celia's got this lovely picture that she used in some training that we um, did recently, and it's just a picture of um, a little person, like a three-year-old, in a whole bunch of layers, <laughs> like, a, and then ending in a big parka with, like, you know, uh, that fluffy kind of whatever you call that fur around a parka, the hood of a parka. And um, that's a kind of really nice image that helps us understand, I think, some of these adaptations and um, how they come to be, you know, that we need them for protection, we need them for survival. We've got to find a way of navigating the world that keeps us sane and keeps us going. And um, and I think that that varies according to probably genetics and personality type in the way that we adapt. And also the severity of the incident as well would be another factor in that. There's probably many factors, but that would they would be three big. Mm-hmm. Does that explain? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good example um, in terms of like the emotional attunement example, because I think that's actually, I know at least that's very relevant for me. Like many of us aren't taught how to attune to our own emotions or self-regulate. Mm. Um, that's not something that at least historically was taught and mm. feeling certain feelings were seen as bad right like mm. anger is bad or you know sadness mm. is bad or wrong yeah. and um I always can come back to that saying you know feel to heal but if yeah. we don't know how to feel and yeah, know that right. we will be okay that's a really it's a big barrier and it's a, it? it's not something I don't think I'm not suggesting that non-mental mm. health practitioners kind of like um yeah. open that up with people because I of guess course. one of the other things we understand about relational trauma at least is the, um, there's a quote from Bessel van der Kolk on this, which is something like, by far the most far-reaching impact of relational trauma is on the emotional system. So, mm-hmm. um, And so I guess um, the way that the emotional system, the person's emotional system is able to regulate is, is often really impacted and it can it could be really overwhelming for a person. So I don't think, I'm not kind of saying, well, just go and start telling people to feel their feelings. Yeah, it's definitely course. not that simple and it could be really unhelpful for someone to you know to they could get overwhelmed with that but just to understand that's just one type of adaptation and and even just like you know if people have had a lot of pain and suffering in their life like keeping a lid on that you know trying to because in the absence of knowing what else to do with it that Mm. can um, really impact regulation as well so just kind of the work of the bay can be Mm. um you know, can create anxiety or dysregulation or physical symptoms like breathing or heart rate changes and things like that. Mm. And I think I think that's just even just knowing it, it can be helpful, right? And yeah. I think, for instance, I guess in my work, having that lens to be able to say that, you know, binge eating isn't, isn't wrong, which like society treats binge eating as a really yeah. bad or shameful yeah. thing. Or just a failure of will, right? Or fa- so yeah. Not that. yeah. No, it's yeah. actually really smart. Like yeah. if we think about babies, you know, a breast or a bottle yeah. is very regulating. So it's like, no, yeah. it's actually a really smart adaptation to something you don't actually know what else to do with. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I think we have to be a little bit mindful of, you know, depending on how the person is and, um, you know, how I guess what's going on for them, but, you know, um trying to take away these survival adaptations not saying that we don't want to help someone quit smoking or quit drinking or Mm. quit binge eating but um just being mindful that those adaptations are there for a reason 
yeah, they've been protective. We're not they've trying to pull protective. the rug out of yeah, under yeah, someone without yeah. supporting them to cope. Yeah, in exactly, ways. and to develop other yeah. ways to cope. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. and I, I guess that kind of leads me to the next question, which kind of relates to this idea of shame and self blame. And I, I've heard it said, and I'm not a psychologist, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but especially well for humans but especially for children that when something bad happens to them often instead of internalizing something bad happens to me they internalize I'm bad and Mm. understandably that leads to a lifetime of shame and I know every person's situation is unique but do you have any general approaches or ideas you can share for helping people to move through that shame Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that can be really helpful for people to understand in relation to these types of experiences is just the idea of the stages of cognitive development. So um, some people listening might be aware of Piaget, but he was kind of the cognitive development guy. But anyway, that doesn't really matter. It's just the idea that um, children's cognition develops at certain predictable stages and that thinking for children is very egocentric until like maybe 11 or 12 or something like that. I don't know. It might be younger, it might be I remember, but certainly at two or three or four, a child's thinking, I mean, before two there isn't thinking because there's not language yet, and so that's also important in the way that these experiences are encoded. But then um, if there is a kind of shame-based experience, then... Um, And I guess the way I understand um, egocentric thinking and egocentric thinking is the idea that everything is about me, um, that the world revolves around me. And to me, that's also like an evolutionary driven kind of survival adaptation that if we really realised at three that our whole safety and our whole (laughs) well-being was at the hands of our caregivers, that would be really terrifying. So um, if we, if we, conceive that everything is about me I guess it builds this whole level of control and and you know um if the messages coming in are good messages you know that you're a good little boy or a good little girl or you know whatever it is you know that you're powerful that you can affect change that you can do stuff that you know all of those messages that I guess we would want kids to receive um and then uh the the belief the self-belief will be I'm in control I'm powerful I'm effective you know but um if the opposite happens if something and you know no one's childhood is perfect because parents are human and humans are imperfect by nature so all of us have had experiences of this ilk but I guess the way that we would make sense of it as a three-year-old would be to say that's because I'm a bad little boy or a bad little girl because of that egocentric thing do you get what I mean so even in understanding, like, you know, helping people understand that you're not doing that for fun. (laughs) You're not kind of getting up in the morning and holding these deep core beliefs about yourself. This is just stuff that happened to you. And because of the age that you're at, that was the only way you could make sense of it. And that's very de-shaming just to understand, oh, this is not a personal failure on my end. I did what any other kid in this situation would do. And that's think it was about me. So that that's um, one step, you know, that's just one way of understanding, um, yeah, I guess that idea that it's not a personal failure and then I guess there's a whole variety of ways psychologists use to help someone shift that core belief. But even in the realm of other disciplines, I mean, one of the most powerful ways we change our beliefs is through doing, through, and that's part of a cognitive behavioural therapy kind of model, but one of the biggest points of change is through behaviour. 
And so if we chip away and we're able to set achievable goals and we can make a small change, you know, that starts to change a core belief because people are starting to experience themselves differently in the world. And like, I can do that. You know what I mean? So it might not be the whole story, but certainly that they're really powerful ways of, um, of changing some of those um, core beliefs that might be shame-based, yeah. Mm, I think that's really helpful. Like I think with that, um, what's a saying I heard recently? You're like, oh, you've probably heard the saying, knowledge is power. Yeah. Recently I heard someone say that knowledge is power and self-knowledge is self-empowerment. So I yeah. think when we understand things about ourselves from that compassionate yeah. lens and also yeah. your example in your biological lens as well, it's like, yeah that gives us that empowerment to know I'm not bad, I'm not wrong, I'm human. I'm not broken. I'm not broken, correct. Yeah. So I really like you sharing the little bit of the science behind that. That. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really important to, um, yeah, understand. Like, and almost like if someone's able to just be curious about what kind of unfolds in their nervous system, understanding that it is based on something that happened before. It's it's something that that comes up rather than looking at it as a, like I said, a personal failure or a sign of being defective. Mm. Yeah, yeah, feel this alone as well. And yeah. I guess before you did mention internal family systems or IFS and so it kind of makes me think about the idea of self and we don't necessarily have to get into the nitty-gritty of it but there are a few foundational beliefs um, to internal family systems which is a therapeutic modality that I really love and would love to get your viewpoint on and and the first one is specifically to that idea of what in IFS they call the self and it's kind Mm. of like this idea of this in a resource that we're born with this kind of innate goodness that unfortunately we can lose touch with as we as as we grow or as experiences or certain things happen so i'm wondering if you can speak to that understanding of of self or however you conceptualize it yeah so um yeah, maybe to kind of just talk a little more broadly for a minute or so just about internal family systems. So um, probably a couple of things are important about that. Um, it's not the only model of um, parts or multiplicity of mind. You know, there's actually quite a number of models in psychology um, for that. Um, and even some that probably have this idea of, of a kind of part of your consciousness or awareness that you might bring, you know, even um, transferable maybe in some other approaches to the idea of wise mind or um, but I suppose the dif- the difference that I experience at least in the internal family systems model um, is that it is a kind of psycho-spiritual model. So it's kind of like this um, idea of self um as connected to not only a great resource within the individual, but perhaps connected more broadly to kind of a spiritual experience that might be, you know, like Dick Schwartz, who um, it's his model and he talks about self as a wave and a particle. So we can experience self as in a particle sense, like in ourselves, but we can also connect more broadly to this idea of interconnectedness that probably comes from Buddhist philosophy um, yeah, and so coming back to just the model of, of internal family systems or IFS is the idea that we do have parts, that everyone has parts, that it's normal, that we're born with parts, um, and that that uh, 
Um, it's just a, a really normal part of our experience and that we have a self. So, and in the IFS model, the parts are kind of categorised into parts and exiles. And so protector parts are like everything we've been talking about are those protector defences or the ways that we've adapted um, to cope with life. And the exiles are like the younger, um, it, you know, the younger parts of us or, you know, um, that might hold some pain from earlier experiences and mostly what, what we do with that pain, especially if we experience it at young ages, is to kind of put it in a capsule and um, send it somewhere out of our awareness and then the job of those protected parts is to kind of keep it at bay. And the role of the protectors can, according to what people have experienced before, can become more extreme if that job of keeping the exiles at bay gets harder and harder. So, and that's where we, um, you know, in IFS, they talk about managers and firefighters. So I guess if the work of keeping the exiles at bay is, um, you know, can be really difficult, we might rely on some firefighter activity, which IFS language for mm -hmm. those types of addictive behaviours that sometimes we see, you know, that really um, aren't aren't that helpful in a kind of healthy adult way in, in this current year, but certainly are effective for um, keeping that pain out of awareness. Does that make sense? And then, and then the idea in IFS, which is just so lovely, is is that everyone has self, and it doesn't matter what anyone has experienced. That self is untouched by um, previous traumatic experience, and the idea is that it's a constraint model, so that we're working with the parts to help them update and um, heal and unburden and kind of step back to allow greater access to self. Um, yeah, and I, I suppose. There's also uh, some various people in the IFS world that have um, talked a lot about how to use this model safely with people that might come in with, you know, really complicated backgrounds, really complex trauma, um, really extreme parts and and um, ways of working with them really safely, you know, um, which is super important. Mm. So that that obviously sits in the psychology domain and, yeah. and um yeah, and takes a lot of skill and training to know how to work safely with people that have experienced that in order that you can help them heal in a way that their system can cope with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I just I, I wanted to hear your kind of overview on particularly that self-energy because I think I guess that's, I guess before hearing about internal family systems wasn't something I had heard before, but yeah. I think having almost like that uh, awareness or that self-trust that there is a part of us that, you know, innately we kind of have that goodness and it can be hard to connect with if we, you know, do yeah. have parts that are, you know, taking the driver's wheel, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but part of that work and part of the work that people can have in terms of, um, healing is relocating that self and re-understanding their self as you know good and supportive and yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah whole yeah. in a sense yeah so, absolutely think, and maybe yeah. on a really you know simple level to kind of bring it back into the the clinic room you know mm. with people that might be listening is you know maybe it's just a um most people have had a, an experience in their life where they kind of feel calm and connected. You know, sometimes people have that experience in nature or sometimes, you know, just in moments during the day, you might kind of have this sort of 
wave of kind of calm or connectedness or um, just kind of well-being, I suppose. And um, and I think coming back to what we were talking about, that idea of common factors, the more as clinicians that we're able to access a little bit of that in ourselves in whatever way we can get there, whether it's by understanding the parts that might be getting in the way of it or if it's even just more simply kind of doing some breathing, grounding exercises, connecting us between each client with a sense of calm and, and being connected to ourselves, then that's likely to be really helpful. Mm. And also, you know, really prevent burnout because I feel like um, for all of us that are working every day to help people, you know, it, it's when those really exhausted manager parts, you know, protective parts are out there doing the work that they get really tired and I feel like that's burnout, you know. Um, mm. And so accessing more of that energy in our own systems and, and how we do the work with our clients can be really protective against burnout, really help us. Um, feel energized you know I know on days when I've been in the clinic if I feel like I've been um, able to access quite a lot of that in my own system um, I'm driving home feeling really different to days where that's been possible. Mm, yeah and I think yeah. that's certainly not unique to healthcare providers it's definitely there totally. but at yeah. the time that we're, we're recording in early December I'm sure I think this episode will come out in 2024 in the new year but yeah. that's definitely I think a lot of people I'm seeing I resonate but also a lot of the clients I see yeah. are at this end of year where that totally. access to self is so really hard. diminished absolutely <laughs> and even understanding like yeah. I think, you know my personal experience with this is some days you just can't get there very well you know and that's yeah. okay we just yeah. we just bring acceptance and compassion and curiosity as to what's getting in the way of that and some days yeah. it might show up a lot more strongly and mm. and that's life I feel and knowing that that's always innately within you it hasn't gone anywhere yeah it's, it's just, it's just you've got some parts that are tired and then yeah. you're having trouble stepping back yeah 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 and that's I think just knowing that is so helpful and I think our conversation today has just been I've like the energy of it has been one of such compassion and I really can see that in the work that you do and the energy that you bring to this space um, both for clients and for healthcare professionals so I'm really grateful for your time today and I really oh. just want to say thank you for for bringing that energy here oh that's awesome it's been really lovely talking to you and I feel like you bring a similar energy to your work so it's great it's great connecting with like-minded practitioners yeah thank you so much fantastic Thank you so much for listening to Good Enough Nutrition. If you have thoughts or questions from today's episode, hit me up over on my Instagram at Nutrition. If you have a moment to rate or review the podcast, that would be amazing. Or share that you're listening on your stories and tag me. I absolutely love to see it. As always, remember that guilt has no place near our food or bodies and you are good enough as you are always.